I'm Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant, and if you're visiting, I'd, I too would like to extend a welcome to you. We're glad that you're here. We do have one very special guest that you may get to meet on your way out, but Kate Hutchison just joined us from China in the last few days. She's our newest one-and-a-half-year-old here with Marty and Tim, their new adopted daughter, so we're excited to have them back safe and sound. If you're just joining us, we're in a series this fall on the book of Philippians. So if you'd like to be turning there in your Bible, uh, now would be a good time to do so. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in one of the chairs in front of you. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 1. You'll find that on page 980 of your pew Bible if you're using one of those. This series of Philippians, we've entitled it Growing Up and Growing Close because this book of Philippians, this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, has so much to do with his encouragement for them as they grow up in their faith and as they grow close both to God and to each other as they uh, follow Jesus together. This morning we're going to be picking up in the second half of verse 18 and we'll be reading through the end of the chapter in verse 30. Let me pray for us. And then we'll read. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning and we turn now to hear from you in your word. Would you be gracious and speak to us? We thank you that you do. Whenever we open this word and read from it, we have your words to us. We pray that by your spirit, you would put those to good effect in our lives. Would you use them to wake us up? Would you use them to bring comfort where comfort is needed? Would you bring exhortation where we need it? Would you bring challenge where we need it? But all of it, may we remember that it comes to us in love from you, our Father, who does what is best and gives what is best for your children. So help us to receive it well. Use it for our good. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 through 30. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with your mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had. And now here that I still have. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. And so to it we turn this morning. Uh, l- let me back up a little bit and just give you a little bit of the context of where we are in Philippians. Last week, Ben preached, and in the verses right before this, we hear about Paul in prison. He is writing this letter to this church in Philippi, a church that he loves to give them encouragement and direction. And he's writing in the midst of a Roman prison. 
and uh, not sure what the outcome's going to be. You hear some of that wrestling for him in our passage today. He doesn't know for sure if he's going to be acquitted and be let free by Rome or if he's going to be put to death by the Roman authorities. He doesn't know what's going to happen next. But he is rejoicing that even though he's in prison, that the gospel, the good news of Christ's death and resurrection is being proclaimed and it's going forward and God is doing his work. Even though he's sitting there in prison, and uh, the week before that, in the opening section of Philippians, w- w- we talked about uh, this one simple fact that first to last, we are a people uh, who are to be ruled by God's grace. It is God's grace, his initiative that comes and brings us to salvation. It's a, and God's grace is what brings it home for us. OK, now all that review, just to say this. In that beginning opening section, we talk about God's grace being fundamental. That, that, is, that tells us about God's initiating work towards us. But what we're going to see this morning in our text this morning, we're going to see what response from us looks like to that initiating grace of God. And we're going to see in the way that Paul sums this up, simply this. The response of us towards God's grace in our lives is this, that Christ is to be central in our lives. That's how we respond, by making him central, by acknowledging, another way of putting it, that he is central in our lives. And we see that spelled out in three ways for us in our passage this morning. We see that for the Christian, Jesus is to be our central love and our central allegiance and our central mission. Okay, those three things are what Paul is going to point us to. First, Christ is to be our central love. This We see this in, in verses 18 through 26, the first half of our passage. Again, Paul is, is writing. He's in prison. He's uh, facing a potential death. And he goes back and forth with this sense of, you know, what, what shall I choose, life or death? This, this sort of hypothetical choice of even if I were able to choose today whether the Romans would put me to death or live, I don't know what I'd choose. And that might sound strange to our ears, but he says, look, you know, if, if they kill me, I go to be with Jesus. But if they don't kill me and they let me go, then I get to continue the fruitful work God has given me. I know Jesus now. He's at work in me and with me now. I get Jesus either way. That's what he's saying. He says it'd be better. Honestly, he says, I want to go. I want to go to my final home now. But he says, I think the Romans are going to let me go because I think God has got me in this a little while longer for you, for your good. That's what he's saying to the Philippians. That's what he thinks is going to happen. And, you know, when we read this, we think, really? I mean, come on, that's your perspective? Live or die? Whatever, bring, just bring it on. What's going on with Paul? Well, let me just suggest this. I think what he's pointing to is that he has been captured by a central love, and his heart now has a central love. Jesus is his central love. Paul has tasted God's goodness for him, and he's responding in love towards him. Paul says uh, in Galatians, Galatians 2.20, he talks about the saving work of Christ, but I want you to listen for the way he personalizes it. Listen to this. He says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you see, for Paul, this was not simply good news for the world, which it was. It was good news for him because he knew that the Jesus he was proclaiming was the very Jesus that had come and grabbed a hold of his life. And he says, that is my love now. That is the love that stands at the center of life for me now. One uh, commentator, Gordon Fee, put it this way. Paul is a man of one passion, Christ and him alone. 
We see it in, in our passage this morning, maybe most clearly in verse 21, where he kind of sums up this idea. He says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. No matter what happens, I have Jesus. What can the Romans do to me? What can they bring into my life that would separate me from my good Savior? He said, nothing. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Live or die, he has and will always have what matters most for him. If you think about it, love for Christ, that is the only love of which that is true in our world. Put your love on anything else and sooner or later it will disappoint you or you will disappoint it. What happens when you love your career above everything? Put it in the central place in your life. What happens when you get laid off? What happens when you retire? It's gone. The thing you love most, it has no power to stay. What happens when you love your family above anything else? Well and good until your children fail you. Until your spouse fails you. What happens when a family member dies? It does not stay. See, Christ is the one love that we can have that no matter what, in life and death, He is the one who remains. Because the Lord, who is our Lord of life right now, is the Lord who broke, has broken death on our behalf. Live or die, Paul says. Christ is my central love. And He exhorts us. He says the same thing to us. Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, is to be your central love too. And it's to be my central love. Now, I thought some this week about how to phrase this. Uh, you know, is, Christ is our, is our first love, or he, He's our primary love. But the problem with that is, I mean, you get the picture of one among many things competing for our attention, right? I think the idea of centrality gets at it a little bit better because, again, we, He is not simply one or the chief among many. I came face-to-face with this this week. My son, John Mack, our two-year-old, we're sitting on the front step, watching his siblings uh, play in the driveway, riding their big wheels and stuff. And so John Mack's sitting in my lap. He's eating popcorn. And I said to John Mack, John Mack, I love you. He thought for a second. He looked at me and he said, I love mommy. <laughs> I said, you know, John Mack, mo- you know, mommy loves you too. And then he said, he looked out and he said, you know, I love Caroline. And I said, yeah, you know, Caroline loves you. He said, I love Henry. I said, Henry loves you. He said, I love Hannah. Hannah loves you too, John Mack. We sat for a minute. I said, John Mack, do do you love Daddy? (laughs) He said, I love Daddy. He waited a couple seconds and he said, I love popcorn. (laughs) (laughs) You see, for John Mack, you know, bless his little heart. You know, there are all these, all these loves, right? All these good things in life. And Paul comes to us and says, Christ is not simply one among many or even the chief among many. It is to be central. It is to be the organizing love around which everything else is built. And maybe one just easy illustration of this or picture of it would be, the, would be a wheel, like a bicycle wheel. That the very center of the wheel in the believer's life is to be Jesus. He is the center point of our life and the center point of our love. And our loves for all our other things, our family, our jobs, uh, our school, Popcorn, <laughs> spokes on the wheel that radiate out from that. And, and it's an important distinction, I think, because uh, if we look at, at, our, at our love for Christ as simply one among many, it's easy to see our life as this undisconnected, disparate set of affections of our heart. But instead, Christ is the central one, and all our other loves must find their root in that love for Jesus. If you are a Christian, then that means your love for him is to transform all your other loves. It means your love for your family is going to be different now because your love first is for Christ and He is speaking into your, you and your family, teaching you how to love. Your love for your career, 
you can go and rightly work but have a right perspective on it because it is not the ultimate thing anymore. That Christ actually fuels good work as you work with your hands in God's good creation and whatever calling he gives you. See, all our loves are to find their focal point in him. And that's the picture that uh, Paul points us to of the centrality of love for Jesus. That is the thing that has captured his heart. Uh, There's a hymn we sing here occasionally called, Jesus, I, my cross have taken. And here's one of the lines from that hymn. It says, oh, t'were not in joy to charm me, were that joy unmixed with thee. What's he saying? There's no joy, there's no happiness, there's no good in this world that can come to us that would give us joy if it were not bound up part and parcel with our Savior Jesus, the Lord of all things. It says our loves are tied together in Him. And that's Paul's point here. He says that Jesus is to be our central love as it was for Paul as he was in prison writing this letter about the one he loves to a group of Christians that he loves. So first, Christ is central. He's to be our central love. But we also see in this passage that Christ is to be our central allegiance. Okay, and maybe not as obviously, but just as importantly for Paul. Look with me in verse 27. It says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. If you're reading the ESV, the translation we're using, you'll see there, only let your manner of life be worthy. You'll see a little footnote that, uh, and, and maybe if you have a different translation, it's translated this way. A more literal translation from the Greek would be, conduct yourselves as citizens worthy of the gospel. It's, he's using citizen language, and in one sense, and, and therefore political language. It's a language of allegiance. He's saying that first and foremost, you are a citizen of God's kingdom. That is the reality, the fundamental, the central reality of life for you. You are a citizen in God's kingdom, and God is your king. Paul says this, uh, comes to this again later in Philippians, in, in chapter 3, verse 20, he says this, Our citizenship is in heaven. First uh, Peter, in First Peter, Peter talks about the same idea. Listen to what he says here to this group of Christians he's, that Peter is addressing. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He says, he writes to this group of Christians and he says, you are a new people now. He goes on, Peter goes on and says, and calls those people sojourners and aliens and exiles in the world because their true home is somewhere else. They are citizens of God's kingdom. And this is exactly at the heart of what Jesus himself said. Listen to what Jesus says in Mark chapter 1 when he first begins his public ministry, when he comes and begins to preach. Here's what he says. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God. Second little, according to the archaeologist, he had a nice little palace on top of a hill. You could kind of see everything. They say that uh, it was so well put together that you could try and sh- without mortar. So the stones were cut so well that you could try and shove a, you know, like a knife. And he said, "Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord." And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. They're always, with, they're always under his protection and his care. 
So Elijah gets fed and he goes 40 days in the wilderness after that feeding. We will go to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. We are reminded central mission as well. What Jesus is trying to accomplish in this world has to be what we are trying to accomplish as well. Allegiance. I am the king. And our citizenship as followers of Jesus is in God's kingdom. Now, it'd be easy to misunderstand as we read this, the exhortation of Paul to read it incorrectly. If we again go back to verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy or live as citizens worthy of the kingdom of God. Notice that he doesn't say live in a worthy way so that you may become citizens of God's kingdom. Right. Remember, what we talked about a few weeks ago, it is God's grace that initiates with us, that brings us into relationship with him, that brings us into his kingdom. He is speaking to these believers who are citizens in God's kingdom. And he says, now live like it. Live in a way that reflects the reality of your true citizenship. You are a part of God's kingdom. Live in a way that gives glory to God, that reflects that fundamental reality. Now, we use the example with uh, God being our, Christ being our central love. Talked about the, the picture of, of a wheel and the central part of the wheel and all the spokes come out. And we could say the same thing here about allegiances. Um, let, let me give you another example, though. You, you, maybe you've seen at, at a circus the guy that goes around spinning all the plates on all the little poles. And he just runs around like crazy, gets all these plates spinning. And that's sort of how our lives feel like sometimes. Because they are. Because we are doing that. But what Paul's reminding us is that the, your life of faith, your life in Jesus, is not one more plate that's being spun among those other plates. He's saying you are a citizen of God's kingdom, and that changes you. And so now you, citizen of God's kingdom, are the one that goes around and spins all those other plates. Your care for your family, your uh, responsibilities as a citizen of this country, your care for your friends, your job, your school, all those plates spinning around really are plates that we're spinning around and running one to the next. But he says, your faith is not one of those. It defines who you are, the one who goes and spins the plates. It is more central than just one more thing on the list. It is what makes you who you are. You are now a citizen in God's kingdom. And when the Philippians heard this, it would have, it would have resounded for them because as we said in the beginning of the series, Philippi was a city that had been reconquered and populated by the Romans. And it was populated with former soldiers in the Roman army. These were people who were, had given their whole allegiance to Rome. And very likely the people in Philippi would have actually been citizens of the Roman Empire. Not everybody in Rome, the empire, was a citizen. It was a, it was a special honor and brought special privileges. And Philippi was the empire's city. They were into being Roman. And they were proud of their heritage and they were proud of their citizenship. There was a thriving cult of the emperor there. They were proud of their emperor. We are Romans. We are Roman citizens. So when Paul speaks to them and says, your citizenship is in heaven, you have a citizenship more fundamental and more important than your identity as a Roman, it would have resounded for these people. Because citizenship tells us something about our identity. And that could be literal citizenship or metaphorical citizenship. The things that we find our identity in. I think about it this way. Maybe for you, it's your family. That's your citizenship that you look to. My family is what gives me my identity. My, first and foremost, I'm a member of this family. When Elizabeth and I first moved uh, to Williamsburg, we, we met somebody who was, uh, whose family had been in Virginia a long, long time. And they said to us, they said, are you of the Virginia Barretts? 
To which I replied, no, we come originally from the much lesser known California Barretts. <laughs> the Virginia Barretts, I take it, are the ones who built the uh, Barrett dorm on campus. That's, that's not our Barretts. But for some of us, maybe that's it, right? Our family is the thing that gives us our identity. It is our primary citizenship. Or maybe for you, it's your career. Your career is not just work that you do and work that you do well and care about, but it has become your identity. It's not just something you do. This is who I am. Or maybe, uh, maybe it's your college. Okay, students, uh, let me ask you this. Why do you wear your William & Mary sweatshirt? Wearing your sweatshirt, it's okay. But here's the thing, when you're on campus, you wear that and you think to yourself, I'm a part of something bigger than myself. We're in this together, we're William and Mary, right? And it's part of the sort of esprit de corps of being a student here. But when you go home and see all your friends that went to other places, why do you wear your William and Mary sweatshirt then? Because I go to William and Mary. And you go somewhere else, <laughs> Right? And even if, you're, even if your friend, you feel like, ups you one by their sweatshirt, the point is still this. You go into one of the nation's finest colleges, and that puts you in a very certain club. People who are well-educated and have an educational uh, curriculum vitae that they can point to and say, not only have I gotten a good education, I am something because of this place, right? This thing you're a part of, it speaks identity to you, And maybe for some of us, it's our central identity. Or maybe most obviously for us, not just family, career, college, uh, our nation, America. Paul says this to us. Our central allegiance is to Jesus, not to America. He says our fundamental citizenship is in God's kingdom, not in the United States. Now, this has absolutely nothing to do with being liberal or conservative with being a Democrat or a Republican. This has everything to do with being a Christian. Paul says your fundamental citizenship is in heaven and we cannot lose sight of that. We are Christians before, way before, we are Americans. This was driven home to Elizabeth, myself. A number of years ago, we uh, tell stories from this periodically. It was such a pivotal time in life for us. But we were with students. Uh, we took students over to Romania for a summer uh, years ago, and w we spent eight weeks over there, which, you know, for us was an extended amount of time. And if you've ever been to another country and actually spent a little bit of time there, you, you realize suddenly how much you don't know when you look around. You don't speak the language. You don't know how to follow directions. You're trying to figure out the subway system. You don't know how the grocery store works. You are a stranger in a strange land. And if you've been in that situation, do you remember what it's like when you see something, taste something, or near something American? And you're like, finally... Something that reminds me of home. I mean, we never go to McDonald's in the United States, but in Romania, we loved McDonald's, right? <laughs> There's home. And, and here's another way it hit us. We were on this trip, and we were in the city of Bucharest, and as we went around the city, occasionally we would see, midst of all the Romanians, we would get, catch a glimpse of Americans. And some of the ones that we caught a glimpse of most often were a group of uh, American Mormon missionaries who were in Bucharest at the same time we were. And what we realized is that when we saw those people over there, keep in mind, people that were there teaching a false gospel about who Jesus is, they were, they were telling people things that were not true about God. But when we saw them, we thought, Americans. Uh, some of us got in conversations with them. We were like, there, ah, my brother, the American Mormon, right? 
And what we realized is that it felt that way on the surface, but, on the, but, the, but the truth is that when we spent time with Romanian Christians, our brothers and sisters in the Lord, fellow citizens in God's kingdom, that we had much more to bind us together with them than with these other Americans that we saw. But it struck us that it didn't feel that way. Because though this may well be true of us and is that we are fundamentally citizens of God's kingdom, we don't always believe it. We certainly don't always act like it's true. Rich Mullins uh, died a number of years ago. Christian singer had, had a song called The Land of My Sojourn about his own relationship with America, his home country. And he says this, Nobody tells you when you get born here how much you'll come to love it and how you'll never belong here. So I'll call you my country and I'll be lonely for my home. Because Christ calls us to have him as our central allegiance, that our central citizenship is found in him, in our central love. But we see, as we near the end of the passage, that Christ is also to be our central mission. Look with me again at verses 27 uh, through 30 as he goes on and he speaks of this and uh, picking up in Second half of verse 27, I may, may I, that I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict you saw I had and now hear that I still have. You see, Paul knows that if, if Jesus is going to be our central love and he is going to be our central allegiance, then his mission, his work in the world has to be our central mission as well. What Jesus is trying to accomplish in this world has to be what we are trying to accomplish as well. Turning a world around from its brokenness and its sin, calling people from death to life. Paul says, this is my job. And he says to the Philippians, this is your job too. And interesting, you've got Paul here, the professional missionary and church planter, saying, you know, this is, my, this is my job. This is what I'm doing. And on the one hand, we look at that and go, of course you are. It's your job, Paul, right? But then what does he do? He turns right to the Philippians in these verses and he says, the same is true for you. All of you in Philippi, all of you here in Williamsburg, all of you who are normal people doing normal things as we all are. What if he speaks to us in the middle of our real family situations, in the middle of our careers, in the middle of our lives, saying all these other things are a part of God's central mission in you. You are to be a part of his mission. However, he calls you to live that out. And this mission for us is to be marked by three things. And this will just be brief. Our mission together is to be marked by unity. Look in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. So whether I come and see you or absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He says you are not to do this alone. You've been called into a body of believers and you are to go into this mission together. You are to value and love Jesus above all centrally together. Jesus is to be your central allegiance together. Jesus' mission is to be your central mission together. We do not go it alone. He goes on, he says, not only is unity to be a mark of this mission, so is courage. Verse 28. And not frightened by any, in anything by your opponents. It's, it's echoing what Paul prayed for him, or spoke about himself 
uh, up in verse 20. He says, my eager expectation and hope I will not be ashamed, but now with full courage, as always, Christ will be honored in my body. Paul says, I need courage to live out this mission well. And he says, you need courage together as you live out this mission well. Our mission is going to be marked by unity. It's got to be marked by courage. And then most strikingly, he says, our mission is going to be marked by suffering for Christ's sake. Look at verse 29. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. You say, because he's saying that if Christ is our central love and he is our central allegiance, following him is our central mission, then we will suffer. Because that means that we are following in an agenda for life that is at odds with the world around us. It just is. Here's the way one commentator puts it. Suffering is what the followers of Christ may expect as they negotiate their way through the same sort of world that crucified Jesus. And that's what Paul's experiencing. The same world that crucified Jesus is the same one that is persecuting Paul. And he turns to the Philippians and he says, as you guys are leading your normal lives, putting Jesus first, he says, you're beginning to taste that as well. Because to the degree you follow Jesus, you are out of joint with the world around you. And it will bring suffering your way. N.T. Wright put it this way. From Paul's point of view, the whole business of being a Christian is about living by the belief that Jesus is already the true Lord of the world. Most of the world doesn't know this yet. And so the loyal Christian is inevitably out of step with people all around. And this will result in misunderstanding and hostility and even persecution. If our citizenship is really in Christ and not in a country or a city or a school or a career around us, if we love Jesus above all things... And so we seek to please him. It's going to put us out of joint with the world around us. Now, that may well not bring in our lifetime actual persecution and oppression for us as it was for the people in Philippi. And as it does even today for believers in other parts of the world. But it will bring it. Maybe for us, it might look like this. The raised eyebrow of your neighbor. Or the dismissive comment from a co-worker. Or the sneer from a family member. It will come our way. And we have to ask ourselves this question. If it's not coming our way, why not? Why not? Am I living out of joint with the world around me at all? And you see, Paul remarkably, even more remarkably, says not only are you going to suffer, he says this suffering for you is a gift. Did you catch that part? He says it has been granted to you. In verse 29, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. It's been given to you by God himself, not only to believe in Jesus, but to suffer for his sake as people who love him above all. For whom Jesus is their central love, their central allegiance and their central mission. He says it's going to come. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, you need to go figure that out this week. Our home groups, most of them are studying through the book of Philippians as we preach through it. Talk about it in your home groups this week. Think about it. Talk about it at lunch today after the service. Um, because I've, personally, I've wrestled with this this week. As we hear this call of putting Jesus as a central love in our lives, and it naturally makes us ask questions like this. Really? Is he really the central love in my life? Or am I really chasing after a bunch of other things? 
Or he is to be the central allegiance in our life. Is he really the central allegiance? Is he really where my identity is found in that way? Because there are a lot of other things that I'm sucking my identity from and that I am looking to and serving. Is it really the central mission for me? What's it going to mean for us to live out of joint with the world in such a way that we stay true to Christ and we don't just be weird for the sake of being weird? You know, we've all had experiences where we've looked over our shoulder and said, I don't know what that guy who claims the name of Jesus is doing, but I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind, right? What does he have in mind? We need to figure that out, right? And he's not, Paul's not even saying, go pull up your boots and go stand at odds with the world around you. He says, if these th- three things are true of you, if Jesus is your central love, if he is your central allegiance, and if his mission is your central mission, he said, this will happen to you. We don't need to go looking for persecution. You don't need to go looking to be misunderstood by your roommates. But this does tell us that as we look to Jesus and follow him, we should expect to find that. That's not all the Bible says. The Bible also says that as that occurs and as that happens, we will also be a testimony to the world. And some will come to know Jesus as they are challenged by their own, about their own central loves and their own central allegiances. Because God is building his people, but it's his people. He has us. And he is to be our central love and our central allegiance. And his mission is to be our central mission. And we need to live that out together. So this week, go talk about that. Because that's what Paul calls us to and invites us into. And though the questions are pretty straightforward here, the answers are not. So we're going to have to seek Jesus as we figure out how to live in this together. And that's okay. Because we have his spirit and he is with us and he will do that good work. Let's pray. Father, we do pray and I, we lift up to you just the, the loose ends, not only of this sermon, but of your word here for us. Because you call us to these things, that you might be our central love and allegiance and mission. But you don't spell out for us what that's supposed to look like in 21st century America here in Williamsburg and at the College of William and Mary and in our jobs and families. But you are here. Your spirit has us, and you will use your word to do its good work. May we be wise Christians as we seek to live in allegiance to you. May we be joyful Christians, and may we be consumed by one passion, as Paul was, a central love for you. We lift up these things to you in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, even today, Lord of the world, though not recognized as such in every corner, but one day you will be, because you are coming back. We look to you, our Savior. Amen.